from WJFF Radio Catskill, this is Close to Home, the podcast that explores the people, issues, and institutions in the Catskill Mountains, the heart of small-town America. I'm your host, Leif Johansson. Hey, welcome back. We have spent a few episodes this summer talking about rural transportation. And I think it's hard to have a conversation about our transportation sector without leading into a broader conversation about the energy sector as a whole. So today, I want to talk about electricity, because as we move to modernize our energy sector, we're also electrifying it. Major car companies like General Motors are committing to switching their fleets from combustion to electric motors over the coming years, which means that our electrical grid and where it sources its energy from is more significant than ever. So today I want to dive into how our grid works and how it's being modernized to become more efficient and reliable and what still needs to happen to decarbonize the energy sector, which was, as of last year, responsible for 73.2% of global greenhouse gas emissions. And that's why this topic is so incredibly important, because of how much is at stake. If we as an international community can get this right, we will go a long way towards preventing some of the more serious impacts of climate change. That said, I want to start off today by picking up a conversation with Professor Bill Saxonis of SUNY Albany. If you listened to our episode on gas prices earlier this season, you'll already be familiar with Bill and his work. When I interviewed him for that episode, we eventually ended up talking about where our electricity comes from, starting with the natural segue between transportation and the electrical grid, electric cars. So we'll pick things up there. There clearly is a drive for electric vehicles. I mean, it certainly is a push from the Biden administration and also the car manufacturers. I mean, General Motors has made a commitment to be all electric. I think it's by 2035. Uh, Volkswagen um, has made a strong commitment to electric vehicles. And so I think it's both the private sector and the public sector, at least the Biden administration, certainly not the Trump administration. Um, so I think there, there will be electric vehicles. There are a lot of issues, though, uh, that complicate things. I mean, one of the big advantages of electric vehicles is if you have the, the proper electricity system, the, the, you know, a, a modern up-to-date grid, to make this all happen. You know, if your local uh, electricity supplier is generating uh, electricity using coal, the environmental advantages are not that terrific with, right. with electric vehicles. Um, you know, one of the hopes is that there'll be increasing number of renewables and it will be, everything will be timed in such a way to kind of smooth out the load. The people will be, will be charging their cars, for example, during the evening when electricity consumption drops dramatically. Mm. 
And also our grid is so old and creaky, you know, to be able to uh, be modernized, to adapt to, to um, electric car world, uh, you know, and also more electricity for other things like heat and whatever. There's a push to, uh, to also reduce our use of natural gas, which while less polluting compared to oil, still is a contributor to, because uh, it is a fossil fuel, it still is a contributor to um, greenhouse gas emissions. And, so, and what do you mean exactly when you say that the grid is old and creaky? What, you know, what needs to happen to the U.S. grid to modernize it and bring it into the 21st century? Well, uh, you know, a lot of the grid was developed uh, many years ago, and it was basically developed for kind of a hub and spoke system that you had a big central power plant that produced a lot of electricity and then the wires and whatever would, would take it out to various, um, various homes and businesses. And under the new system, under, you know, a more reimagined grid system, you have people with solar panels on their house that are, that are not even buying electricity from the, from the utility. In fact, they may be selling electricity to the utility. Uh, you need to have these kind of smart systems that know when to send the juice to your car charger if you have an electric vehicle and when not to. Mm. Um, because electric use you know, can vary quite a bit. There's something called peak demand. Uh, for example, maybe at five in the afternoon or it's a little later in New York City, people all get home and they start switching on their TV sets, their air conditioners, their stoves to make dinner, et cetera. You know, there, there's a peak demand. Um, same thing in the morning when the businesses are starting up. So sometimes there's a morning peak, sometimes an afternoon peak. So the, there's, a, there's kind of an ebb and flow to electric uh, consumption. And also when we have really hot weather, like we had like a week or so ago, then the use of electricity can go way up. There is something in New York State called the New York State Independent System Operator. Mm. And they're basically the traffic cop for all the electric generation plants in the, in the state. And they tell, you know, what plant can, where they need power and where they don't need power. It's, it was really quite an amazing. So uh, they need to operation. have just a wealth of data on, yes. you know, when each, you know, region is going to be having peak demand versus the, the low point where they don't need as much energy. At NISO headquarters, they have uh, what's supposed to be one of the largest video displays in the world. It's basically mm. a map of New York State with all these different colored lines that represent different electrical lines. And then you have a whole bunch of people sitting below the big screen, uh, sitting at their computers, basically being a traffic cop for, for electricity. Um, so, for example, you know, the fourth or fifth day of a heat wave we may be using a third more electricity than say we would use on a normal S September day, simply right. because the demand is, is so high. And uh, one of the things that's interesting, uh, your listeners might be interested in checking out the NISO webpage, that's N-Y-I-S-O. And you can actually see in real time how much electricity New York State is using. They literally update it every 15 minutes. So you can wow. see on a really hot, humid day, especially a multiple day heat wave, you can see what we're using. 
compared to a, you know, a day in the middle of winter or whatever, you can see basically a, with about a 15 minute update exactly what New York State is using. You can also see the breakdown of where the power is coming from at that particular moment in time, how much is coming from natural gas, how much from nuclear, how much from hydropower. Uh, there's a lot of neat things on the NYISO, uh, NYISO webpage, and it's, it's worth worth checking out. Even if you're not a geek like me, it's still it's still <laughs> kind of it's still kind of interesting to uh, to check out. There's a lot of interesting information there. So our main sources of electrical power in New York are natural gas, natural gas, is hydro, and nuclear. Right, nuclear and hydro. We also import a fair amount of electricity. I believe it's around 17% that we uh, import, a lot of it from Canada. The real challenge in terms of electricity is, is more the downstate region, the New York City area. Uh, it's also the area where there's the least amount of renewable, renewable power being used. Interesting. And I know that the Indian Point nuclear power plant recently shut down for good, uh, yes. just what, 30 or 40 miles north of New York City. Right. Um, so, for example, with something like that, is I would assume New York has to pull a whole bunch of energy from elsewhere now in order to keep the, the lights on reliably for everyone. Yeah, they opened up um, three gas plants to try to make up for the difference. Hmm. And I, I think the uh, let's see, I have some statistics here. Uh, in 2019, uh, Indian Point provided 13% of the state's electric power wow. and about 25% of the lower Hudson. And, um, you know, so that had to be replaced and they're, they're now using, using gas. Now, Natural Which is gas actually is, far far worse for the environment than using right, nuclear. Right, it is a fossil. It is a fossil fuel, not as bad as oil or coal, but it still is a fossil fuel and still contributes to greenhouse gases where where the nuclear plants don't. But of course, the the concern with uh, Indian Point was one was safety, having a nuclear plant so close, as you say, 25, 30 miles from New York City. Uh, was a concern, and it was it was aging. I think it was uh, close to sixty years old. It was mm -hmm. built in nineteen sixty two. Right, and so nuclear power plants are one thing that you uh, you'd you'd really rather not have uh, creaky while while on right. Your hands. Yeah, and that's a problem that a lot of the nuclear power plants in this country are aging, mm -hmm. and you know they, there's been some efforts to build new. Uh, nuclear power plants that haven't worked out so well. They've run into big deficits and whatever. There is a newer technology. It's a kind of a uh, module, modular nuclear, uh, which may have some potential down, down the road. I mean, that's another thing, you know, we were talking about the grid, um, you know, a lot of new technologies and how successful they are is going to be very important. For example, uh, energy storage. I mean, generally, when a power plant produces some electricity, it has a very short shelf life. I mean, you've got to use that electricity pretty much almost immediately or right. else it's, it's going to go away. Um, but if you have storage, it makes, a big, it makes a big difference. And that's something that there's been a lot of technological in, in, in advances. It's also a concern uh, with using more renewables because, you know, the, uh, when the sun is shining, solar power is great. 
but when it's cloudier at night, it's less less great. And the same thing with the with the wind turbines. When the wind isn't isn't blowing, it's not so good. When the wind is 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 blowing, it's very good. So there's all kinds of uh, there's all kinds of issues, which is which is why we need to look at the grid in kind of a holistic way. It's not only old wires that may have been put in, you know, 50, 75 years ago, but it's also the design. As I say, it was designed for big power plants run by coal or oil or whatever, not for, you know, Joe Smith having a solar collector on his house or a small module of nuclear or windmills that may produce a lot of electricity at some times and not enough electricity at another. So... You know, if you were czar of the energy grid and and essentially had unlimited resources to restructure the energy grid, however you felt correct to do so, pull energy sources from anywhere, how how would you want to do it? What system would you want to use? And what energy sources would you be working really hard to phase in and which ones would you be working to phase out at the same time? Well, let me let me give you a, an answer that might sound a bit snarky, but I like them all. I like all the, the solutions. Mm. And I actually mean that because I think to really address the climate change problem, you need an all-hands-on-deck approach. Mm. And there are things like carbon taxes that, that tax the basically tax the greenhouse gas emissions. You know, that has some merit. There's something called uh, carbon sequestration which means taking carbon out of the air. So you're going to be using your fossil fuels, but you, you've got the technology that pulls it out of the air. Um, you know, there are people like Bill Gates that really advocate technological solutions. They say these various government programs and tweaks here and there, you know, really aren't going to make a difference. We need big leaps in technology. Well, that makes a lot of sense to me, but it also makes a lot of sense to me to have people, um, maybe driving less, trying to consolidate their trips, turning off their light bulbs when the lights, when they leave the room, those kind of basic things, because they all contribute to lowering the, uh, you know, your carbon footprint. You know, uh, there's so much work that needs to be done. I think we need, you know, just a little bit of everything, you know, new technologies, uh, more development of renewables, carbon sequestration, uh, all of these things, I think, need to be part of a part of the mix. There needs to be government involvement. There needs to be private sector involvement, and that's one of the things that's encouraging is that um, a lot of Wall Street types are really uh, pushing an environmental agenda. Um, Citicorp uh, has been a leader in financing of energy efficiency programs for years, and they've invested billions of dollars in energy efficiency. You know, a skeptic might say, well, that's that's where the money is, you know, the growing business or whatever. But nevertheless, um, you read some of the reports that Citicorp is putting out and, you know, they, they could be accused of being tree huggers, you know, because they're, you know, they say, this is a real problem. We have to do something about it. Uh, Larry Fink over Blackstone, which is a company, a financial company that manages, I believe it's nine trillion dollars i think is the latest number Whoa. and that's trillion not billion <laughs> but trillion wow and obviously they have a lot of voting power mm-hmm. and they're pushing corporations to be more responsible from a climate standpoint 
And one of the things that um, that I discuss with my students is we look at all levels of government and there's a lot of activity going on, obviously at the federal level, but there's also a lot going on at the state level. I mean, New York State, California have very aggressive uh, climate change proposals, uh, actually laws, Should, shouldn't say proposals, they're actually in law. And also at the local government level, um, cities like New York City, Chicago, San Diego, have very, very aggressive sustainability, climate change policies uh, that have been done at their own local level. So all, all the levels of government are, are, you know, are very much involved. And so that, that's encouraging, encouraging too. It's really important. It's one of the things I stress to the students is whatever we do, whether you're a Republican or Democrat, you're environmentalist, you hate the environment, uh, no matter what side you fall on, it's important that whatever we do, we get it right. Because here are the conservatives down in Texas thought they were being clever by saving a few bucks and having their electricity be you know, a little bit cheaper by not having the proper safeguards. And they put all these people in you know, distress. I think some people died because they didn't have the proper heat or whatever. Pipes were bursting because they weren't prepared. If we don't move carefully and do proper planning and give proper consideration, we can have problems in any, any state can have problems. Any country can have problems if they botch their energy policy. There was a botched energy policy during the energy crisis of the, of the early 70s. It drove the country into economic chaos. There were gas lines. There were fights at the gas pump. Uh, buildings were clo- uh, plants were closing. Schools were closing. Inflation went wild. It was just a horrible period. Mm. And it was all because OPEC had enough power to manipulate the energy market. And we had some bad energy policies that also contributed to it. So what I try to plead with people is whatever you do, whatever approach you take, the Republican approach, the Democrat approach, the environmental approach, whatever you do, think about it carefully and make sure you have all the I's dotted and the T's crossed because we depend so much on energy for heat, for keeping our hospitals going, for transportation, for our economy, yeah. that, like I say, even a ransom attack on a pipeline caused, caused chaos uh, in, in a large part of, the, part of the country. And, you know, that's, that, that's why I think we need to do a whole bunch of things like this. Oh, let's do everything. Let's conserve energy. Let's push new technology. Let's have regulations for buildings that make them more energy efficient, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. We need to do everything to deal with this challenge. But whatever we do and whatever priorities we set, do it in a smart way or else we're going to be in real trouble. So I think that gives us a solid baseline understanding of how our electrical grid works in New York State, where our energy comes from, and the challenges we face in getting our energy policy right. And I want to build on that with my next guest today, Peter Savio. 
Peter spent most of his career working for NYSERDA, the New York State Energy Research and Development Authority. And today, he's on the front lines of New York State climate policy advocacy. He is passionate about finding creative and effective ways of tackling our increasingly urgent climate problem. But before we get into all of that, I first just wanted to know what exactly is NYSERDA and what is its role in our energy sector? So uh, NYSERDA is a public benefit corporation that uh, has originally focused uh, on research, development, and demonstration of clean energy solutions that had what we call the triple bottom line. So it benefited uh, energy, it benefited the environment, and it benefited the economy with a primary focus on New York State triple bottom line. Uh, NYSERDA grew from its early days to uh, including a component which was deployment. In other words, implementing programs to actually go out and try and see those clean energy solutions adopted. And now it's, a, it's an organization that includes a, a green bank, a, a large-scale solar program, a large-scale renewables program. So a whole host of uh, roles today, uh, but, but primarily focused in this clean energy space. And what was the work that you were doing with NYSERDA? Uh, in the, at the beginning, it was really focused on large commercial and institutional customers working with them to achieve energy efficiency. And that mm. could be everything from a uh, sewage treatment plant, college and university, manufacturing center, medium-sized office building, large offices in New York City. Uh, so a whole range of energy efficiency for medium to large commercial customers, including institutions and industry. And then uh, over time, I uh, got more involved in some of the environmental programs around things like urban heat islands, working mm. on projects in New York City to try and better understand the threats of uh, rising temperatures and what that would mean in urban areas and potential mitigation opportunities. Uh, and then over time, uh, got uh, involved in emerging technologies. There, there was a gap between research and development and actually seeing them adopted in the real world. So emerging technologies was a big focus. And then um, I kind of finished my career with uh, large-scale renewables, especially focused around solar. So it sounds like NYSERDA must play a big role in going after and hopefully achieving some emissions reductions targets, at least the state level over the next couple of decades. So what exactly are our emissions reductions targets and, and what's the role that NYSERDA plays in helping us try to get to those targets? Yeah, great, great question, Leif. Um, so NYSERDA, NYSERDA's role is uh, consistent with what I described in terms of the range of efforts to help move the needle uh, uh, to see uh, faster and uh, larger scale of adoption of clean energy solutions. Uh, those solutions bring substantial 
emissions benefits. So for instance, if we just look at heat pumps, if you look at heat pumps, if we were to convert, say, you heated your hot water in your house with oil and you switched to a heat pump hot water heater, depending on the efficiency of the oil uh, hot water heater and the efficiency of the new heat pump, you could see a five to eight times reduction in emissions. So there's a very substantial effort on the part of NYSERDA to see broader mm. adoption of heat pumps. So that's one example. To your question about goals, the the high level goals in New York State uh, really uh, are around greenhouse gases are kind of remarkable. New York is a leader among all the states in terms of setting ambitious goals. And right now the goals for 2030 are a 70% of our electric supply to come from renewable sources and our carbon emissions to be reduced by 40% by 2030. Those early goals are very, very important because the longer term goals, the 2040 goals are an 85% actual reduction in emissions with the remaining 15% reduction in greenhouse gas emissions to come from tightly controlled offsets or emissions reductions through natural and uh, manufactured means to uh, lock up carbon so that it's not escaping to the atmosphere. So they're, they're highly ambitious goals, but to tell you the truth, they are less ambitious on the emissions reduction side than what the IPCC report, uh, the International Panel on Climate Change has deemed necessary and appropriate to really protect our futures to um, uh, reduce the very, very severe risks of climate disruption. How do we actually get to those goals? I mean, what is our energy grid in New York State looking like right now? And what's it going to take and what coming online and what's coming offline in order to get to that point then? Well, if we go back two years ago and we looked at the trend lines in New York State, um, we were one of the top five in the country in terms of having a decarbonized electric grid. And the others who were up there with us had some substantial advantages. So if you look at Washington state, large federal money was invested in, in huge hydropower projects. Um, if you look at Texas, Texas has amazing wind resources and some really uh, uh, wide open spaces where they're installing large scale solar. Um, if we look at Iowa and parts of the Midwest, there are such substantial wind resources. So New York, if you go back just a few years, was uh, even just back to 2018, 2019, was in the top five in the country in having uh, a decarbonized grid. So we were well positioned if we um, played our cards right to really get on track to the 70%. It would be hugely ambitious, but it would be uh, a challenge that I, I is a cost-effective challenge. There are cost-effective solutions today. So even However, by that point, how were we in the top five, though? I mean, lacking all of that stuff that 
those other oh. states you were just talking <laughs> yeah. about have. We don't have the same wide open spaces that Texas has. We don't have the same level of hydropower, you know, outside of a few major projects that, you know, Washington state has and whatnot. So, so how did we even get, get to that point? Well, we actually do have some real assets. So uh, Niagara Falls is, is a, a major contributor to our zero carbon electricity. Um, we also have some assets in terms of a pump storage project known as Blenheim Gilboa. It's a, it's a battery for electricity that pumps water from a lower reservoir to an upper reservoir overnight. And then the water flows down during the day to help cover some of the peak electric requirements when the air conditioners are running all out, which probably happened at about four o'clock today in New York City. So we have the Blenheim Goboa pump storage project as an asset. We have Niagara Falls. Uh, New York Power Authority has a very robust investment in transmission. And we had a handful of nuclear power plants. Uh, two of them, Indian Point, and uh, several of them up on Lake Ontario. So that, that's really where the assets were. We were mm -hmm. more like Europe in terms of having some nuclear assets that are zero carbon. They certainly have other trade-offs. If you look at Indian Point, uh, the, the thermal uh, output from their cooling water was had one of the greatest impacts on aquatic life in the Hudson. Uh, there's certainly... Uh, very uh, reasonable and appropriate concerns about the storage of nuclear waste on site. There are certainly appropriate concerns about um, uh, having to deal in, in case of an accident, uh, safety of the surroundings. However, from a carbon, from a climate threat basis, in an ideal world, we would uh, keep the nuclear power, the existing nuclear power plants open as long as they could safely operate until we could ramp up energy efficiency, clean energy, renewables. And right, that makes a sense. Little bit, a little bit uh, ahead of the, the uh, installation timeline for the renewables. So we, we dropped from uh, fifth in the country to, I believe, 13th in the country, 12th in the country, somewhere in that range, uh, as soon as the last uh, Indian Point power plant dropped off. So that was a big, big change. Right now, where you are is kind of a dividing line. So if you look at the upstate electric grid, it is almost 90% decarbonized because of the power from Niagara Falls, the Blenheim-Gilboa, the nuclear power plants on Lake Ontario, and substantial wind and solar development over the last decade or so. So... Um, that's really impressive progress. Some of the one of the cleanest grids in the entire country. However, a little north of where you are, and all the way down through the Hudson Valley into New York City and up Long Island, it's almost the reverse. Mm -hmm. it, it, it's it's almost eighty percent. It's more than eighty percent reliant on carbon-based fuel sources. So that's that sets the stage. So how do we get there? How we get there is we're going to need some um, substantial transmission upgrades and modernization in order to get that clean power upstate to be able to travel downstate where the majority of the energy consumption is, where the majority of the population is. Right. right now, there are five major electric transmission projects going on 
And it's the first time in several decades that there's been serious investment in transmission to allow that clean energy from upstate to be shared with downstate. So that's one step. The second step is there are uh, substantially increased investments in distributed energy. So distributed wind, distributed solar, other distributed sources. And then thirdly, there's some very, very large scale, and this is really the key in terms of, of the electric grid and electric power that is, that is uh, carbon free, that is offshore wind. So offshore wind is uh, a very, very promising solution. The wind resource offshore is much stronger than the remaining wind resource terrestrial on land, on mountains, et cetera. So, um, that wind resource is contracted for is uh, most of the way through permitting is uh, partway through engineering and is expected to come online, I believe the late 20s and early uh, 2030s. So that wind resource is really the big gap filler on the electric grid combined with the, um, the continued need for transmission modernization. You mentioned the distributed wind energy. Yep. What exactly does that mean? Well, generally, it means you've got a small manufacturing facility that may have a few acres, and mm. uh, there's a wind map available from NYSERDA, and you look on the wind map and you say, I always thought it was windy here. I can actually <laughs> see a preliminary idea that indeed it is. I'll put up an anemometer to prove it out. If it proves out, there could be a manufacturing facility and there are several upstate that have chosen to install wind. So it's for that individual property. It's not necessarily injecting it into the grid. And then similarly with solar, um, there are some uh, large scale manufacturing or institutional customers. For instance, uh, SUNY Cortland put in a large scale solar project to help offset what they would normally be buying mm -hmm. from the grid. So distributed simply means it's uh, smaller scale and more more uh, diversely arranged, uh, closer to the consumption point. Decentralized is the trend line right now. So to give you the example, we're talking about 2,000 megawatt nuclear power plants going offline. Uh, we're talking about every coal plant in New York State has now been closed, and you're talking about thousands of megawatts. Uh, and in the case of many of the, the solar projects that are distributed, you're talking about 200, 400, you know, maybe 500 megawatts or 1,000 megawatts. Right. But it's, it's rare that you get above 500 megawatts. So we're already trending toward this more distributed system. One challenge in it is that, one challenge with it is that the, the grid was not uh, designed, engineered, or developed for two-way transmittal. Oh, of power. I see what you mean. So the original system was designed with the hub and the power flowing only one way out to the customer through those spokes. When you build a distributed system, the system now has to accommodate two-way power flows. So there's a uh, a substantial need for grid modernization to accommodate it. So we have we kind of have to we have to re-engineer and modernize the system in order to achieve either one, either the larger scale uh, 
development or the more distributed decentralized development. But we've we've really got to do both. I mean, we we have to uh, increase the number of wind, the megawatts of wind and solar installed every year for the next nine years, we have to increase it by a factor of four, roughly, to hit our 2030 goals. Wow. Now, now you know, we'll, we'll get a big chunk if when that offshore wind comes online, but we've really got an ambitious effort underway. Do you feel that the ambitiousness of the effort here in New York State and also major efforts in other states around the country, in Europe and whatnot, is reasonable in terms of what we're going to be able to do? Reasonable is an interesting word. Reasonable. By Um, reasonable, I guess I mean, are we going to be able to meet these goals? And how important is it actually that we meet them exactly versus continuing to pursue them? You have some great questions. <laughs> it, is, it is absolutely unimportant that we meet them exactly. In my view, every installation, every uh, step we take toward clean energy and decarbonization is bending the curve of carbon and reducing the very substantial consequences that come with all of the carbon that we inject in the atmosphere. So every every step we're taking is important, is valuable. We should appreciate it, celebrate it, and rock on and take the next step. So th- that's the first thing. The, these goals are important because we begin to align resources around it. So for instance, NYSERDA has contracts in place for more than enough clean energy to get us to our large-scale renewables targets. So we have the contracts, but they have to go through permitting, engineering, et cetera. And to tell you the truth, some of the permitting, especially around local siting, is very challenging. So back to your reasonable question, though, because that is an intriguing question. What I would say, Leif, is that what is absolutely unreasonable, untenable, and unacceptable is to do nothing and to allow the types of consequences like wildfires, floods, and damaging the future viability of the planet that that supports us. That is absolutely unreasonable. So if we know that's absolutely unreasonable, untenable, unacceptable, the reasonableness of this clean energy solutions that are more cost-effective than fossil-based solutions in 70% of the country. We have cost-effective solutions. It's a matter of overcoming the inertia, investing in modernization, and coming together as people to acknowledge that uh, we're all in this together. And if we don't pull together, we're going to pull apart. And that's not pretty. I think that's actually a great segue into the next thing I was just thinking about in terms of all being in this together. There's been some new information coming out from the International Panel on Climate Change recently, 
And I think it's also fitting because it's an incredibly hot day and it's an incredibly hot mm-hmm. week. And there's really bizarre weather patterns emerging all over the world right now. There's intense wildfires all over the place. Um, so can you talk about some of the new developments on the climate change research front? Sure. Just big picture. There's the good, the bad, and the ugly. Hmm. The good, if you go back to the Paris Agreement or just a little before it, the last IPCC report uh, roughly 13 years ago, if you go back to that, we were on track for a likely four degree Celsius temperature increase, potentially even six degrees. So what's amazing is that in this short period of time, we have generally started to pull in a better direction. The more likely scenario now, maybe in the around the three degree Celsius temperature range, if we just sort of steadily don't do much more, but keep on the track we're on, blah, blah, blah. And we accept some really, really ugly consequences at three degrees. But think about it. I don't, I don't see a lot of people sacrificing. And yet the, the temperature curve projection has gone from four to three degrees. Why? Two primary drivers. One, population growth. With greater education for women, there are smaller families. With smaller families who are better educated, they consume thoughtfully. They certainly have increased demands, but there are fewer people making those demands. Secondly, substantially abandoning coal across the world. So we've seen the first steps. We've seen a, a increasing price on carbon in Europe. We've seen some important steps in China and India. Uh, we've seen some important steps here. So that's the good. We can do it. We've proven that we can do it. And we don't, mm. we don't have to throw up our hands and, and live in caves or wrap ourselves in, <laughs> in uh, you know, down blankets or something. Um, or, or just go down in the basement every time it's this hot. So that's the first thing. We can do it. We have been doing it. So that's the good. The bad, the latest IPCC report uh, in this uh, decade plus, the science has advanced so considerably that we now understand in much greater detail with much greater certainty the connection, the relationship between a temperature increase and the consequences, the consequences for our health, the consequences for our economies and society, the consequences for rising sea levels, the consequences for increased likelihood of the kinds of forest fires we're seeing. So while we've um, taken important and valuable steps in the direction of controlling temperature rises, um, the consequences uh, are, are, are really dire if we just stay on this three degree track and, and we have increasing confidence in how dire they are. And the ugly is we are not yet pulling together as people. There's a lot of mistrust. There's a lot of politics. There's a lot of inertia. There's a lot of incumbent interests. The ugly is we have to overcome those and recognize the interdependencies. We depend on each other. We depend on the natural environment. I think a lot of people learned this during COVID, that shorter supply chains to get your food 
can really be meaningful. Having a relationship with uh, local businesses uh, suddenly became a little deeper. Uh, and hopefully we can build on some of that. But right now, uh, we're, we're kind of at the at the pivot point. We're, we're going to see where we're going to go. We're going to continue and, and knock it from three degrees to two degrees Celsius and then knock it from two down to 1.5 closer to where we need to be. Mm. Uh, every step is is going to get us closer. And, and we got to we, we need to really work hard and pull together to get on that path. I know that you've been doing some work on pushing some legislative side of things. And I know that you do work with the Citizens Climate Lobby as well. Correct. So I'd love to know about what that is and and also some of the major energy-related policies that you are particularly interested in right now that, that are on the table. So the Citizens Climate Lobby is an organization that's been around for little more than a dozen years, and their real focus is putting a price on carbon. The notion is most people are less concerned about something if it doesn't impact the pocketbook or decision-making. There are some early adopters who are going to get that front-load washing machine in 1995, but um, most of us are going to do it because it, it pays off. You know, it, 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 It's got economic viability right out of the gate. Um, so a price on carbon sends a signal that it actually matters how much we consume. And we actually, the, the Citizens Climate Lobby lobbies for a price on carbon that's a relatively low starting price, gradually increased to give people time to make adjustments, invest in uh, cleaner resources when it's time to replace their heating system or car. And then it provides dividends directly to every U.S. citizen. And those dividends are just a given. Nobody has to apply for them, et cetera. The great part about it from my perspective is it's citizens lobbying. It's not only the paid lobbyists. These are volunteers. We are volunteers. We engage respectfully. We prepare. We do our homework before we meet with an elected official. And we, we press hard, polite persistence, polite persistence. And we've seen it pay off not as much as we need it to, but you know we've made some inroads. And then in New York State, we have a broader set of issues we've been able to support. So we were strong supporters of the uh, Climate Leadership and Community Protection Act, and that's the act that has uh, those goals that we talked about earlier. They are now embedded in law, and that that's a really uh, strong position relative to where we were a few years ago. So we in in the Climate Leadership and Community Protection Act, there's increased efforts for utilities to deliver energy efficiency to low-income customers. Unprecedented. Um, there's now community-level air monitoring that helps these disadvantaged communities to understand the kind of exposure they have down to a discrete level. There's no estimate of your NOx and your particulates. They're actually DEC is making steps to actually measure. And the investments in, in the distributed solar are, are really impressive, along with the large-scale renewables. So the, the CLCPA, the Climate Leadership Community Protection Act, was something we worked really hard on helping get that baby passed. Now what we're working on is follow-through. So how do you follow through since the goals are this ambitious? I guess I'll just lay out a few examples that are, that are 
I find exciting, interesting, promising. So there are uh, bills proposed to modernize our codes and standards. So right now, if you go to buy uh, an appliance, those appliances uh, might be distributed the, in three grades and the more efficient grades go to Massachusetts and the slightly less efficient here. That doesn't sound great. Why don't we mm. modernize our standards so that our appliance standards are up to snuff with the other five or 10 leading states in the country? Uh, there's another bill called, um, it's effectively eliminate fossil fuel subsidies. In New York state, we have a number of tax subsidies for fossil fuels. I don't know about you, but it feels funny to me. How are we as state taxpayers paying our share of the taxes, but fossil fuel companies get breaks on their taxes? And then on the other side, we're trying to pay subsidies for clean energy. Why don't we just have eliminate the tax breaks for the fossil fuel companies, put a modest price on carbon, and slowly taper down those subsidies? That, that seems like a more rational approach. You mentioned the carbon tax and dividend. So if we're taxing carbon, you would expect the price of carbon-based fuels like gasoline at the pump to go up, which would theoretically have some impact on demand for gasoline, except the dividend is getting paid back to citizens and so that they have more money at the end of the day to afford higher priced carbon-based fuels like gasoline. So is there strong evidence that we wouldn't just be essentially causing inflation on carbon-based fuels, but still with the same capacity to pay for those fuels at the end of the day? Yeah, that's a, that's a great question. I think baked into this is an, an assumption that uh, there's there's a proportion of people who will be rational decision makers. And that is that, well, that kind of tells me the next car I'm buying, I'm buying a, a hybrid. I don't want to just pay this freight the whole time. This will put me further ahead. Hmm. Or if you're using oil or natural gas at home, you might look and say, you know, my boiler is going to last me 10 years. I think I'm going to replace it in five with heat pumps. I'll have to pay a little more, but I'll get some NYSERDA and some tax incentives and I'll get ahead because, you know, this gradual increase in price, it's going to catch up to me. So there's an assumption around rational decision making that some studies uh, would would show it going with in one direction in terms of adoption and change, some in another direction. Uh, that That's the price sensitivity of various sectors is very different, right? Mm. So there are a lot of other factors that influence decision making, but clean energy solutions are coming down in cost rapidly. Right. So the, the cost of solar has dropped 90% in about a dozen years. Wow. 90%. Holy the cost cow. of wind has dropped 40%. That's how steep the cost declines have been. That's why we've crossed over. That's how we've crossed over to renewables being less expensive than fossil fuels. Mm. We've seen similar uh, declines, not as dramatic, but similar declines in battery storage, similar declines, not as dramatic in energy efficient motors, uh, in air conditioners. We're not seeing it quite as steeply with heat pumps yet, 
but uh, as as demand increases, as the scale of production and service and installation improves, we expect to see that. So that's that's part of the kind of the the solution here is people need cost effective, attractive, viable alternatives, and those are emerging rapidly. Uh, across the board in terms of the supply of clean energy, the energy efficiency aspects, the control aspects. And we're seeing this inflection point around us right now. Um, So a price on carbon would simply accelerate that. Other steps like codes and standards would accelerate it, would bring it to scale more quickly and more effectively. And that's that's really what we're about. The we're already moving in this direction. Life. It's it's a matter of we're not moving at the scale and speed necessary to protect ourselves from the worst impacts of climate change, and it's just unreasonable, <laughs> unreasonable to continue down that path. We need to we need to you know look at the solutions that that are off the shelf, readily available, cost effective, and clean. Since I spoke to Peter, I have been thinking a lot about the question I asked him about whether it is reasonable to have such ambitious carbon emissions reduction goals here in New York and beyond for that matter. When I asked that, I was thinking about the potential lack of political will to greatly increase investment in renewable energy so quickly. But now I keep asking myself, what exactly is the alternative? If we accept that overhauling our energy grid is too heavy of a political and financial lift for us in the next two decades, we're then also accepting all of the meteorological consequences that come with three or four degrees of warming above pre-industrial levels. And I know three degrees Celsius doesn't sound like that much, but if this summer seemed like it had pretty intense weather and climate-related events happen, we're talking orders of magnitude harsher. So what is the reasonable thing to do? I think it's not only reasonable to take swift and decisive action on our energy sector, it is imperative for our own sake. And Peter made a great point. To take the giant leaps we've managed to take on reforming the grid in the last decade or so, we aren't particularly worse off. There haven't been drastic tax increases, or any great push to change how we live our lives in the day-to-day. So even with essentially keeping the status quo in our own lives, there has been major progress on our climate goals. Does that mean we shouldn't be environmentally responsible citizens? No, of course not. But it does mean that continuing to pursue a renewables-powered electrical grid should be something that we can all come together and get behind on. Because the alternative, well, it's pretty unreasonable. Thank you to Peter Savio and Professor Bill Saxonis for their time in contributing to today's episode. And as always, thank you for listening. I'm Leif Johansson, and you're listening to Close to Home, a production of WJFF Radio Catskill. I'll see you next time.